0: Good to see everybody. Could you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 19? This evening, in our study in the book of Revelation, we find ourselves in chapter 19. Tonight, focusing pretty much on verse 11, but um, there's so much here. Uh, But let's read verse 11, where John says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse And he who sat on him, let me stop. Don't confuse the rider of this white horse with the rider on the white horse that we saw in Revelation chapter 6, verse 2, which reads, And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. As we said when we studied chapter 6, the writer in in chapter 6 is not the true Christ. Some commentators think it is Jesus. No. He is not the true Christ. He is a false Christ. We know him as the Antichrist. How do we know that? Well, first of all, he's wearing a crown. You say, well, doesn't Jesus wear a crown? Sure, but this crown in the Greek is a Stephanos. And um, that is not the crown of a king. The crown of a king in the Greek is diadema, diadema. But um, a Stephanos is a crown, but a crown that's given to an athlete who wins a competition. Sometimes they even put this kind, it's a laurel wreath that fits over the head or on top of the head. And sometimes they will, back in those days, gave this crown to a general who had won A great victory and they would throw him a big parade and they would place on his head uh, a Stephanos crown a laurel wreath and that was of course the the crown wasn't worth anything but it was the it was the the symbolism it was what it represented right our American flag is what cloth and ink in intrinsically it has no value but it's what it stands for where all the power and all the dynamism comes from right Um, So, first of all, he's not wearing the crown of a king. He's wearing the crown of a conqueror, a victor. Secondly, he is holding a bow. That's the writer in chapter 6, verse 2. And whenever Jesus is seen holding a weapon in Revelation, it's always a what? A sword. A sword. Here we have the climax, guys, of redemptive history, the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth to establish his kingdom. And in verse 12, it says... When he comes, he will wear many crowns, many diadema, because he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Once again, verse 11, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. Well, there's no one in this universe called faithful and true except for the Lord Jesus Christ. And in righteousness he judges and makes war you know it may interest you to know that next to the subject of faith there is no other subject in the bible that is mentioned more than the second coming of jesus christ i didn't know that until it was pointed out to me the second coming of jesus is mentioned 1845 times in the bible one out of every 30 verses mentions it seven out of ten chapters in the new testament Talk about it. For every one time the first coming is mentioned in the Bible, listen, the second coming is mentioned eight times. And yet, so many churches and Christians have stopped talking about and looking for the return of Jesus Christ to the earth to establish his kingdom. Why is that? Well, first of all, I believe it's because many Christian churches don't teach prophecy to their people first of all liberal churches don't even believe in prophecy they think that these things were written after the fact and made it seem like they were predicting the future liberal churches don't even believe in prophecy but I'm talking about uh, many evangelical churches uh, why they don't teach prophecy to their people Um, first of all because they believe it makes people uncomfortable And today in churches across America, for the most part, not all but many churches, it's all about making people feel comfortable. Good heavens, why would you say anything to them that would make them uncomfortable and where they're going to go down to the churches down the street? I mean, there's churches everywhere they can go to. We have to make them happy. And so they want to stay away from anything controversial. Prophecy for many is very controversial, but there are other evangelical churches that Don't teach prophecy because they believe it diminishes people's desire to work for the kingdom of God right here on the earth. It's the old adage which they believe is you teach prophecy and really that gets people's heads in the clouds and if they're too heavenly minded, they're not going to be any earthly good. We've talked about that. that. That's of the devil. That's not a biblical concept. You can't be any earthly good unless you are very heavenly minded. Because that's what we're working for, uh, to see people say that they can spend eternity in heaven, right? So there's a lot. But secondly, so it makes people uncomfortable. Uh, number two, they, they just think that it diminishes uh, Christians' desires to work for the kingdom of God right now on the earth. But also, many churches don't talk about or teach prophecy because, truth be told, they wouldn't mind if Jesus didn't come back for another 1,000 years. Or at very least, if he did, just didn't come back in their lifetime. Why is that? Well, because here in the West, at least, in the West at least, they've got it pretty good. They've got it pretty good. So why rain on everyone's parade with all the negativity that comes uh, with the subject of prophecy? They've been right. You know, the logic goes, I mean, God, I mean, with God blessing America like he has, um, doesn't he want us to enjoy his blessings? You know? Doesn't he want us to just enjoy what he's given us um, rather than than depress people by teaching them about coming judgment and death and famine and and, uh, disease and and so on? Revelation stuff. Most churches today will not even go near the book of Revelation. But first of all, to respond to that logic, let me just say this. 27% of the Bible is prophecy. So if you're not going to teach prophecy in your church, you're not going to teach over one quarter of God's word. And didn't Jesus tell us that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word? He didn't say except the 27% that's prophecy. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And God spoke prophecy in his word. And while it is true that for many years we Christians in America have had it pretty good, as God has poured his blessings out upon us, folks, things are a-changing. The blessings that we have come to expect, and even many have come to believe they deserve as Americans are slowly being removed from our country. You know it. I don't have to tell you that. And if inflation keeps rising and necessities keep diminishing, they're talking about food shortages, um, power shortages. If all these things keep going and increasing, or if persecution against Christians begins, well, the collective cry of the people of God in America could soon be come quickly Lord Jesus and don't you know maybe that's exactly what God is up to in allowing things to get progressively worse and worse in our country but also in many countries in the west as we have said in the past Christians in third world countries that lack basic necessities and suffer constant persecutions for their faith long or Jesus appearing. They long for his coming. Let me read you part of something I read a couple of Sundays ago. Not as long as the one I read then, but again, this gets right into the topic we're talking about. One pastor said with regard to this, and I quote, I once visited an isolated eastern city in the former Soviet Union where I met with 1,500 impoverished Christians. They were the descendants of exiles, and they and their ancestors had suffered terribly under Soviet oppression for three-quarters of a century. Their poverty was so severe that they had to work hard every day just to put food on the table. The subject that was most on their hearts was their future in the glory of heaven. I had the privilege of teaching them about that from scripture for several hours and many were so overcome that they wept with joy the pastor said their response was strikingly different from that of many christians in the west who have things so good that they do not know what it is to long for heaven as a result they live as if going to heaven would be an unwelcome intrusion into their busy schedules, an interruption of their career goals or vacation plans. They do not want to see heaven until they have enjoyed all the pleasures the world has to offer. When they have seen it all and done it all, or when age or sickness hinder their ability to enjoy those pleasures, then they will be ready for heaven. The pastor says when the church loses its focus on heaven, it becomes self-indulgent and self-centered. Materialistic and worldly, spiritually weak and lethargic. The pleasures and comforts of this present world consume too much of its, the church's, time and energy. Of course, you all remember what Paul said in Colossians chapter 3. Let me read to you the first four verses. If then you were raised with Christ, yes, spiritually raised, right? Seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The key to living for Jesus right now is to keep your eyes on him he's in the heavenlies keep your eyes on things above this is not our home we know that the bible is clear we are pilgrims and sojourners, only passing through to our eternal home in heaven the problem is for too many of us and myself included as americans we have been showered with so many blessings that honestly if jesus didn't want to come for a while wouldn't bother me But it certainly would bother a lot of Christians around the world who have nothing and uh, who are persecuted daily for their faith and who long for his coming. They could teach us a lot about what it means to be a Christian and keep our perspective where it should be. Well, verse 11 again. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. Once again, we have the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth in view here to establish his kingdom. Now, let me say this. Don't confuse the second coming of Christ with the rapture of the church. You would be shocked if you knew how many Christians and commentators um, blend them together and act as if they're the same event. The rapture happens before the tribulation period begins. I'm totally convinced of that. And I think we see that in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, where the church is taken to heaven and the tribulation period doesn't begin until chapter 6, verse 1. So the rapture happens before the tribulation period begins, whereas the second coming takes place at the end of the tribulation period here in Matthew, in uh, Revelation 19. At the rapture, Jesus comes, listen, for his church and snatches her off the earth to meet him in the clouds. At the second coming, he comes with his church from heaven to the earth to establish his kingdom. The language that's used of the rapture is the rapture happens suddenly um, without any warning silently we hear the trumpet we hear the angels shout but apparently the world does not they are left to wonder what has happened to millions upon millions upon millions of people who've just disappeared but the bible never speaks of jesus second coming as a quiet or secret event that's what cults like like the jehovah's witnesses teach um i should have pull out some of my material resources cuz I'm doing this for memory but the watchtower has predicted that Jesus Christ was going to return I don't know how many times I think 1914 1917 1925 I mean it just keeps going the last time it was like in the 1970s right in fact they predicted it so many times and nothing happened to, to to tell show people they weren't false prophets, they began to teach. Well, he did come. He came quietly and invisibly. And now he's in a secret room somewhere. Well, excuse me, but didn't Jesus combat that idea before he went to the cross? Remember Matthew 24, verses 26 and 7? Therefore, he's talking about false prophets. Beware of false prophets. Why don't you turn there? I think it's important enough to do that. Matthew 24. He's talking here about false prophets. Therefore, if they, verse 26, Therefore, if they say to you, Look, he is in the desert. (laughs) Do not go out. Or look, he is in the inner rooms. Oh, it's a secret place. Don't believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be, I will light up the sky with my second coming glory, and every eye is going to see me. I'm not going to tiptoe invisibly into some secret room somewhere. Remember what we read in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, which says, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, Even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. We see from Revelation 19 that Jesus' second coming, this event will be sudden, highly visible, and listen, we will have nothing to do in bringing it about. Now, I say that because there are those who believe that Jesus' return and the establishing of his kingdom, listen will not be something that happens suddenly when he chooses to come. They believe it will be a process, a process that Christians will bring about over time through political involvement and electing Christians to public office. And even though I believe in electing Christians to political office, I, do, I don't believe that that will bring the kingdom of God to the earth. The folks that believe that Uh, are called Reconstructionists or Kingdom Now people. Kingdom Now, guys, is the belief that Christians need to take over positions of power in government because then we can change laws and Christianize the world. Or in other words, bring the kingdom of God to the earth now. Get it? Kingdom Now? They hold to this view because they believe that They will bring the kingdom of God to the earth now instead of waiting for Jesus to come back and bring it. In fact, they believe he won't come back until uh, we Christianize the world as the church. So, and here's the thing. So, he's not coming back until we Christianize the earth. So, we're not waiting on him. He is waiting on us or so they believe the two main problems i see with this teaching are as follows first of all it takes our eyes off the coming off of the coming of jesus and puts them onto the world again this is in direct violation of colossians 3 verse 2 set your mind on things above not on things on the earth and yet with this doctrine the church has its great commission changed from go into all the world and preach the gospel to everyone so that they might be saved to go into all the world and run for political office so that you can save the world. <laughs> it's a little backwards, I get you know. Satan has effectively used this doctrine to take many Christians away from their true mission, which is the great commission while redirecting their passion away from souls saving people to saving the planet, saving the world through political involvement. This causes them not to watch for Jesus' return to the earth, but to watch for their particular candidates' rise in the polls while they become obsessed obsessed with working to get Christians elected to public office. And in the process, It effectively neutralizes their witness to this lost world. They're not really focusing on saving people. They're now focusing on saving the world through politics. And so it neutralizes their witness, a witness that Jesus was so passionate about when he said in Luke 19, verse 10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save those who are lost. Guys, we must in these last days keep our eyes on the ball. What do I mean? We must stay focused on what Jesus commanded us to do, and it was very simple. Go into all the world into all the world, preach the gospel, save the lost, and be vigilant in watching for my return. Look at Revelation chapter three, verse three. Was this an important topic to the Lord? You better believe it. His commands to his church to be watchful are everywhere in the Gospels. But in Revelation 3, verse 3, Jesus said, Remember therefore how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Therefore if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, And you will not know what hour I will come upon you. I will have you turn to Mark. Mark 13. This one will send chills up your spine. Listen to how the Lord really hits this. Mark 13 verse 32. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is. Verse 35 Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. Whoa. Wow. That's why it's so sad that Paul had to say to the Romans, it is high time that we awake out of sleep, for our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. If Paul could say that 2,000 years ago, it really applies to us today. Their salvation was nearer back then, 2,000 years ago. It's certainly much nearer today. But that brings us, I think, to the second main problem I see with dominion theology or kingdom now teaching. It renders prophecy not only worthless, but reprehensible in the eyes of those who hold to this doctrine. I read one Christian who holds to this theology who said, and I quote, Anyone looking for the rapture is a coward looking to escape the earth instead of working right here and now on the earth to bring the kingdom of God to this world, quote. One well-known pastor, you all know who he is, I'm not going to mention his name, but one well-known pastor said with regard to this, that, and I'm quoting him, any church that teaches its people prophecy is teaching them a pie-in-the-sky theology which is counterproductive to doing the work of God here on the earth right now, end quote. So they believe that by teaching people prophecy, somehow it takes the fire from their heart to serve God now. Um, I, it's amazing to me. A, a pie-in-the-sky theology? Um John said that knowing prophecy gives us hope that, you know, we we know Jesus is coming. And uh, it's a hope that will um, make us more holy in our walk with the Lord because why would I want him to come and find me all entangled with the world if I know that the rapture could happen at any moment, um, you know, He who has this hope within him purifies himself even as Jesus is pure, John said. But one author put it this way. He said, and I quote, Many Christians in churches today aren't looking for the Lord's coming because they believe he won't come until they Christianize the world. It's called kingdom now or reconstructionism. Christian reconstructionism basically teaches that it is... It is the church's responsibility to deconstruct this present evil age of man's rule upon the earth and then reconstruct it by voting Christians into office that will then pass righteous legislation that will transform the world into a Christian utopia. He says it has its roots in liberal theology, which has always seen the church's mission as that of saving humanity, not from hell, from poverty, injustice, famine, disease, and lately from things like global warming and other environmental issues that are damaging and destroying the earth. This has become the fastest growing movement in the church today. How sad. At a time when we are nearer to Jesus Christ's return than ever before, and where prophecy is such a critical thing uh, for the church to embrace and understand because it points us to how soon Christ is coming so that we live holy lives and are vigilant and really serving Him. The devil has got us, the church, redirected. And, and, and now it's all about fixing the world. It's all about, you know, um, you know, making the world a beautiful utopian kingdom that Christ can come back and take charge of it. This has become the fastest growing movement in the church today. These are churches that put down the teaching of prophecy, which they say causes people to have their heads in the clouds. They claim that these people, that would be people like you and I, okay have an escapist mentality that you're wasting your time studying prophecy and looking for the rapture, which they say is a joke. They claim it's keeping you from the real mission of the church, which is social social justice, reforming society, bringing mankind into unity and love with each other so that Jesus can come back and inherit the kingdom the church has established for him on the earth, end quote. Listen, folks, uh, these folks sincerely feel that for a Christian to believe that Jesus will come and rapture his church at a time when the world has become so bad and therefore ripe for God's judgment, well, they believe that's to declare defeat. Look, the world needs the church now more than ever, any other time in history, they, they, they maintain. Why would we want to be raptured out of here when, you know, this is a time that we need to stay here and be a light and bring God's love to the world and unify the world and so on and so forth. And all of that is noble, it's just misguided. I mean, God never told us that was the mission of the church, to fix the world. To go and unify the planet and take care of issues like global warming and things that are destroying God's creation. Those are all things Jesus promised He would do when He returned. What's my mission? What's your mission? Go into all the world, preach the good news. To everybody you come in contact with, Jesus is coming soon. When He comes, He's going to fix this mess. He's the only one who can. Keep your eyes on Him. Stay in the Word, be vigilant. Watch for his return. How do you watch for Jesus' return? you got no prophecy. You can't watch for Jesus' return if you're not looking for things he said would happen before he came. That's prophecy. To talk and teach about prophecy and the rapture um, at a time when the world needs the church more than ever before, that's just escapism. That's to declare defeat and so on. One of my favorite authors, Dave Hunt, he's with the Lord now, brilliant man, godly man. His books are worth reading. Dave Hunt, he said, and I quote, Being taken to heaven in the rapture has been to a large extent replaced by the rapidly growing new hope that the church is destined to take over the world and establish the kingdom of God. The focus has turned from winning souls for citizenship in heaven to political and social action aimed at cleaning up society. Scarcely a sermon is being preached about the world to come. Attention is focused instead upon achieving success in this one, this world. Uh, if we have a big enough march on Washington and vote enough of our candidates into office, then we can make this world a beautiful, safe, moral, satisfying satisfying christian place for our grandchildren this is a very enticing scenario dave hunt says he goes on to say though the trend has accelerated we could cite the current struggle going on in the southern baptist church as one example it is the largest protestant denomination but is presently losing members at a surprising and growing rate to independent churches that deny the rapture, deny any place for national Israel in prophecy, and believe that an elite group of overcomers, quote-unquote, will soon manifest immortality in their bodies without the resurrection or second coming and take over the world for Christ. Maybe you've heard this teaching. There is an elite group of overcomers, and they're just waiting for God to say the time has come where they're going to be catapulted into some kind of spiritual... Um, you know evolutionary process where they're going to become these incredible powerful spiritual people that will take over the world and lead the rest of humanity in um, well, in this kingdom now kind of theology. But these overcomers will soon manifest immortality and their immortality in their bodies without, Uh, the resurrection or the second coming, and take over the world for Christ. Only then will Christ return, not to take his bride home to heaven, as the Bible clearly teaches, however, but to reign over the kingdom that has been established by her, the church, for him here on the earth. One of the leaders in this movement writes, and he's quoting him now, you can study books about going to heaven in the so-called rapture, if that's what turns you on. We want to study the Bible to learn how to live and to love and to bring heaven to earth, end quote. Oh, sounds so noble. You know, over the course of the history of the church, there have been many people, false prophets, who have risen up, always with good intentions. They never come across as selfish or misguided. They're always ahead of the curve. They're always ahead of their time they have found the truth when so many other christians have missed it joseph smith jr founder of the mormon church said for 1900 years uh, the church was not the true church it was an apostate church and it wasn't until joseph smith got a revelation from god uh, you know where an angel appeared to him the angel moroni you know and showed him these golden plates Uh, the golden plates of Nephi, which had this revelation from God. But you couldn't read it. They were in Egyptian hieroglyphics. And so he had to have a special pair of glasses given to him called the Urim and the Thummim. And when he put them on, he could magically read the tablets. And what were the tablets? It became the Book of Mormon. It's amazing. Uh, How many people have risen up all with good intentions, You know and have misled millions what does the old saying go the road to hell is what paved with good intentions jesus said beware false prophets are like pied pipers who stand by the entrance to the broadway which leads to destruction and they weigh people on down because they have this ability to convince people that they know the way to god when everybody else doesn't amazing What is the antidote to the poison of false doctrine you have in your lap? Know the truth. The truth will set you free, as Jesus said, right? Guys, we are seeing more and more churches adopt this theology, this kingdom now, where they're looking, their their focus is the earth instead of the coming of jesus christ but we're seeing more and more churches adopt this theology especially those in the emergent church movement but also many others uh, like those seeker-friendly churches and purpose-driven churches reformed churches many of them have adopted this and others who see the church's mission to establish the kingdom of god on the earth let me give you one more quote by dave hunt because this is chilling This is chilling. Dave Hunt ends with this chilling statement. He said, and I quote, Consequently, those who expect to meet Christ with their feet still planted on earth, instead of (laughs) in the air at the time of the rapture, a Christ who has arrived to take over the kingdom, and he's got Christ in quotation marks, a Christ, quote-unquote, who has arrived to take over the kingdom they have established in his name will have been badly deceived. In fact, they could have been working to build the earthly kingdom unbeknownst to them, working to build the earthly kingdom of the Antichrist. Yet this teaching that we must take over the world and set up the kingdom for Christ has become the fastest growing movement within the church today. Can you imagine that? Buying into this theology? And coming to realize that you weren't working to build Jesus' kingdom on the earth. You were working to build the Antichrist's kingdom. Remember what Jesus warned in Matthew 24, verse 48. It is an evil servant that says in his or her heart, my master is delaying his coming. Yes, delaying is coming for any reason, guys, including delaying is coming until we, the church, can establish the kingdom of God upon the earth through our political action. Turn to Philippians 3. I want to read you something that you may have not really understood what is really being said here. Philippians 3, verse 20 where paul said for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the savior the lord jesus christ do you know the word citizenship and i made sure i checked the greek today on my bible program and sure enough it, it it's true but the greek word translated citizenship is a word we get our English word politics from. Our politics is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not saying, because I think it is the... um, It could be the Jehovah's Witnesses, or it might be another group, that believes because this is not our home, we should not be involved in any kind of political process. We shouldn't vote. We should just basically stay off to the side. Uh, this world is not our home. So we're not to have any part in electing leaders. And so, That is also wrong. That is also wrong. Jesus taught us that we are members of two kingdoms as Christians. Remember how they tried to trip him up because in those days the romans had imposed what was called a head tax a head tax what is that that was a tax that you had to pay rome for the right to live well the jewish people were furious god gives us the right to live not man right so they it was a real hot button issue and so the the pharisees picked up on that they knew that they had they could lay a trap for jesus with this very issue right and they figured that and they so they came to him and showed him a coin and um and said you know um caesar says that we are to pay taxes to rome what do you say see however he answered they thought they had him if he said it's not lawful to pay taxes to caesar oh he's telling people not to pay taxes. they could have, rome could have arrested him if you would have said, yes, it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then the Jewish people, all of his Jewish followers, would have walked away and followed him no more because they believed their right to exist came from God. So what did he do? In one of those moments of the gift of the word of wisdom, he said, show me a coin. They showed him a coin. He said, whose image and inscription is that? They said, well, Caesar's. He said, well, then give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. That has always marveled me, that, that answer. I mean, that is so incredibly wise. They thought they had him trapped in the horns of a dilemma? No way. But it does teach us, and it wasn't just Jesus who taught us that this Peter and Paul and the other apostles in the New Testament taught us that as christians we are members of two kingdoms we are first and foremost members of the kingdom of heaven that's our primary loyalty where our primary loyalty lies but we are also members of a kingdom on the earth for us it's america and the bible says we are to be good citizens we are to obey the laws of our land because as good citizens we give a good witness okay we give a good witness um So uh, so when Paul says, our politics are in heaven, he's not saying that we we should have no political involvement here in the earth. There's a balance, though, right? And as long as our government tells us we can do the things that God says we can do, and we don't have to do the things that God says we can't do, then we're going to be good citizens. We're going to obey the laws of our land. If our government ever says we can't do something God says we are to do, go to church, read the Bible, or we uh, vice versa, now, what is it, Acts 5, 29 kicks in, we must obey God rather than men. But until that time, we should do our best to you know, be good, good citizens of both kingdoms good Christians, good Americans, pray for our leaders, obey our God. It's getting harder and harder to do that, by the way. But our politics are first and foremost in heaven. Remember what Jesus said in John 17. Why don't you turn to it? John 17. Jesus here, of course, is praying to his father, not that you would have known that. I'm sure none of you have actually studied John 17. so I'm just gonna help you a little bit, just give you a little nudge in the right direction. Um, Some of you weren't even born when we started John 17. Okay, all right, well, maybe not quite, but all right. I know, Gene, you were in high school, I think, weren't you? Yeah, all right, okay. All right, but listen to what Jesus said in John 17, starting with verse 9, 9 and 10. I pray for them. I pray for those that you've given me um, in the world, those that you've called out of the world to be mine. I pray for them. I don't pray for the world, Jesus said, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all mine are, are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. You know, if Jesus believed in kingdom mouth theology, this would have been a great place to pray. Father, I pray that as I have sent them into the world to clean up the world and to bring about political change. You know, because Caesar's a wreck. You know, and I want I want him to you know to be a good Christian leader and you know. So, Father, I pray that they could clean up the. This would have been a great place to say that if it was true. You notice that Jesus never told us, told us to clean up the fish pond. He only told us to fish in it. You'd be wise to never forget that. In John 17, he didn't even pray for the world because, but for the people who would come to him out of the world, the world system, because he knew that at one point God was going to judge and destroy this world. That's what Revelation 6 through 18 is all about. That's what we've been studying for many months now, right? And after the the fallen world system of man was judged and destroyed, Jesus would come back and establish a new world order, the kingdom age, right? Let me read Revelation 19 verse 11 one last time and we'll close. Now I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Guys, this would have been very graphic to John because, in those days, and most of you know this already, but this would have been especially graphic to John, who came from the first century. Because, in those days, when a king came to a city riding on a white horse, It meant he came as a conqueror to make war. They all knew that. Now, if he came riding a donkey, it meant he was coming in peace, to make peace. Jesus, at the time of his triumphal entry, which was the culmination of his first coming, came riding into Jerusalem riding what? A donkey. A donkey. He came not as a conquering king he came as a sacrificial lamb the lamb of God the prince of peace his first coming was all about dying for sinners that we might have peace with God and enter into a relationship that would never end and someday a kingdom that would be forever when he comes the second time He will be riding a white horse. A white horse is a king who comes to conquer and take control. Not as Jesus, the Lamb of God, but Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, who comes to make war and defeat his enemies. We will pick it up there next time because that's exactly what we see unfold now in the narrative in Revelation 19. So, keep all that in mind. We will pick it up next week uh, at this point. Father, we thank you for your great love wherewith you loved us. We, you sent your Son, who was a willing sacrifice, the Lamb of God, who died in our place for the sins of the world. And Lord Jesus, you are coming again, but this time as a conquering King. And you will take possession, you will defeat the kingdoms of this world who are against you and you will replace them with your kingdom and you will be the ultimate king the king of kings and the lord of lords you will wear many crowns many diadem and your reign is going to be a loving reign a peaceful reign but a powerful reign you are not going to allow sin and rebellion You will punish the wicked, and you will make sure the righteous have complete and total justice. It will be a world of beauty, a world of love, a world of peace. And we look forward to your coming to give us this kingdom. And like John, we say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen.